Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Is it great to be seen? Well, you can decide that. It's fantastic to be seen. That's right. Excellent. Excellent. I, um, I, was, um, I got a little distracted during the worship. I was trying to work out, Gabe, how long have you been playing guitar? Since Adam, was, since Adam was wearing shorts, Gabe's, Gabe's been playing guitar, and for a long time in this church. Um, Hank and Claude have, uh, uh, have been ministering here since before I came, and, and I, I look at that band, and, and, I, and, I, and I just love the, the length of time that some of those guys have, have been playing for North End Church. Like, when I came here, Jeff, the drummer, was the only drummer we had, and every week he would turn up on Thursday for practice and Sunday to play. And then I also look across in the corner there, and there's a young, smiling face on the bass guitar, and Ruben's, Ruben's the newest guy on the team, but I love that. I love that. I love that, that God brings us together, and, and, and we get to worship Him as family. And so, thank you to the team. Thank you to the team for what you've been doing with us. So this morning, I want to I share a word that... Um, I really do hope that it stirs you provoke and provokes you. There's your warning. Um, it's not my words, but God's words that stir and provoke you. I might upset you, but it's God's words that provoke you and stir you. And uh, we've been praying into this morning that there would be this uh, Holy Spirit kind of encounter for you. And uh, that's my greatest desire, that you would take away what He's saying to you this morning. Um, Many of us in different situations, uh, we're all on a journey, and uh, what I'm going to show you this morning, uh, take photos of the screens, but I will make the slides available. Um, you can grab our messages via the website or via our church app on your smartphone or device of choice, uh, and what I'll often do is, uh, is I will put my slides up as a PDF, which is a, a digital document, so that as you're listening to it again, you can see those slides. Uh, and so I'll make sure I do that. But take notes and, and take photos if you want to try and capture what's on the screen. Because this morning I want to take you on a bit of a journey at the beginning. I want you to see, we're going to do some Bible history. Who likes Bible history? Oh, more than I thought. Excellent. That's going to be good. We're going to have a good morning then. We're going to have a great morning. We're going to talk about some Bible history. I'm going to show you some things. And then we're going to point the finger at ourselves. Not so excited about that, are you? Hey, I'm going to point the finger at me. I've been pointing the finger at me all week. And I had a little, uh, little encounter time this morning as I was, before I came out here, I pray in the back office and God really struck me with something. So uh, me too, not just you, but me. Uh, so we go, we go along in life. This is um, a timeline I'm going to show you in, the, in a particular section of the Bible, but this applies to your life. We go along in life and, and uh, some of you feel like you're at that big red cross right now. Drama, crisis, problems, issues, people, big red cross. And we'll find out what that is in the story. And, and others of you are, are at that marker where there's an exclamation mark going on. Wonder what that means. And, uh, and then the big green tick. So we're going to have a look at this. Let's have a look in our Bibles at Second Kings. So we're going to look at the story of the people of God and something that happens there. And uh, at this moment in time, it's not so good. It's not so good. 2 Kings 24, verse 1 to 4. During Jehoiakim's reign, he's the king of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded the land of Judah. 
Jehoiakim surrendered and paid him tribute for three years, but then he rebelled. Then the Lord sent bands of Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Amorite raiders against Judah to destroy it, just as the Lord had promised through his prophets. God's into promising problems, it would seem. These disasters happened to Judah because of the Lord's command. He decided, the Lord decided to banish Judah from his presence because of the many sins of Manasseh who filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. The Lord would not forgive this. Well, that's just downright bad. The Lord said you were bad, so you're going to reap the consequences of your bad. And they were overcome. If we turn the page, uh, 2 Kings chapter 25, looking at the first three verses in January in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, same guy, came and led his army against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city, built siege ramps. So they, they had big walls and Jerusalem was on a hill and they had these big walls. And so they're like, well, we can get through that. We'll just build a dirt ramp and then we can climb the wall. Like hadn't thought of the idea of a ladder, but um, this way they could, they could, they could more easily uh, get the army over across. And Jerusalem was kept under siege until the 11th year. And by the 11th year, famine in the city was severe because they couldn't get out because they, they were surrounded by the army. So if you're in Jerusalem, you're um, slowly watching your pantry get empty and, um, and suddenly you're hungry. And then it says in that last passage there in verse 8, the ninth year, Nebuchadnezzar brings the captain of his guard and he burned down the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, the house of Jerusalem, destroyed all the important buildings in the city and he supervised the army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. What a happy start to my message this morning. Judah had been bad in the sight of the Lord and the Lord said, well, you're going to reap that. And he sends the opposition army from Babylon and they destroy Jerusalem. They tear down the walls. They tear down the temple of God, the holy place of worship that had been built. And they steal all the, um, the worship objects, the special artifacts and the gold this and the gold that, and they take it away. And for those of you that know the story of Daniel, do you remember Daniel and his three friends? You've read that, eh? Daniel who ends up in the lion's den. Remember that? Okay. So, so Daniel was one of the young men that at this point who got captured and taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar. So there's some context. They take it away and it's all bad, bad, bad. So what we're going to see here is that King, King Nebuchadnezzar captures Jerusalem. He destroys the city and he takes all those captives back to Babylon. You are conquered. And Jerusalem becomes desolate. So we call that destruction. That's bad. Not good. But then we come to our exclamation mark. So the Red Cross is destruction, exclamation mark in 538 BC. So we've jumped forward almost 50 years in time. And we go to Second Chronicles. So you can swipe your device across to Second Chronicles chapter 36, right at the last page of Second Chronicles. And we read this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven. That's weird. This is a pagan king. 
He's off in Persia. He's worshipping the sun, and he's worshipping objects, and he's, he's really doing whatever he likes. He's conquered the known world. And all of a sudden, this pagan king says, the Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That place that's broken, that we burned down, that has now got animals living in it. Any of you who are the Lord's people, he says, may go there for this task, and may the Lord be with you. Well, that's weird. We, we, we turn the page in the Bible, and we can read the same passage in Ezra chapter 1. So turn the page. Ezra starts writing. He's a scribe. He starts writing the story, and he says the same thing. The king of Persia makes a decree, King Cyrus, and he says, we will send you Jews back, and you shall rebuild the temple, and may God be with you. Just as it was prophesied, Ezra says. And I'm showing you this for a reason. But, but let me just pick up on the cue, because if you read the Bible, you've got to notice what it says. It says both in Second Chronicles and in Ezra, just as the Lord prophesied through who? Read the text. Jeremiah, that's right. So, Kathy read this passage at the beginning of our service this morning. Jeremiah, verse 10. Through to 14, the prophet Jeremiah says, Woe is you, you shall be exiled in Babylon for 70 years, and it will not go well for you. But, says the Lord, I see you and I know you, and I will come to you. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans that will bring you good and not harm, plans to prosper you. And when you cry out to me, I will hear your voice and I will come and redeem you. Do you remember that passage? It's a well-known passage. In Jeremiah, some of you look at me blankly. Okay, make a note. Go home and read Jeremiah 29. It's part of the story, but what I want you to see is this. Jeremiah prophesied that some 50 years earlier. Why am I showing you that? Because I want you to understand whatever's going on in your life, whether you're at the moment of the Red Cross, which is called destruction, or whether you're at the moment in time which is called the Cyrus Decree, the proclamation, wherever you're at, God was there before you. God's got a master plan. And I want you to see that in the Scriptures this morning. And I want you to think about it in your own context. God has a master plan. So we've got destruction by King Nebuchadnezzar, as promised by God. We've got the Cyrus Decree. This is what theologians call the Cyrus Decree, which is the pagan king from Persia who declares, go, Jews, and rebuild your city so you can worship your God and may he be with you. And we've got Jeremiah in the middle who says, it's going to happen, but don't worry, God is with you. But let's zoom out. Because I'm really trying to make a point in my introduction. And that is this. Red moment of X, destruction of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. But if you read your Bible and you have a look at Isaiah chapter 44, you're going to see something that God says. Let's go. Isaiah 44. Swipe your screen. Turn to this. At the end of chapter 44, Isaiah is a prophet speaking to the people of God, and he says this. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer and Creator. I am the Lord who made all things. I alone stretched out the heavens. Who was with me when I made the earth? No one. 
I expose false prophets as liars, and I make fools of fortune tellers. I cause the wise to give a bad advice, thus proving them to be fools. But I carry out the predictions of my prophets, says God. By them I say, Jerusalem, people will live here again. Even though it looks bad, you will live here again. <laughs> Actually, you know, when Isaiah is saying this, the city looks quite nice because it hasn't been destroyed yet. So imagine prophesying that. Don't worry, it looks bad, but it will be okay. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like, it's okay with me. But then he says this, towns of Judah, you will be rebuilt. <laughs> I will restore your ruins. And you're looking going, what ruins? When I speak to the rivers and say, dry up, they'll be dry. And then watch this. Isaiah the prophet says, when I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd he will do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem, and he will say, restore the temple. But look at the timeline. Isaiah the prophet lived 150 years before Cyrus made his decree. Do you think God's got a plan? Do you think God's got a plan? I need you to think God's got a plan. That's what the Bible is showing us. The moment of X, the red cross in your life when things look like the world is falling apart and no one is with you, when you're abandoned and alone and you've got drama and trauma and crisis and you just can't see the end of it, God has a master plan. There will come a time when there is a proclamation. There will come a time when help will come. There will come a time when you will realize God is God and you are merely a, a moment and a breath in the scheme of things. Your life passes quickly, but God is still God. For some of you, this introduction is the best encouragement you could have this week. This is not the message. This is the introduction. Because I'm trying to get us to a point where we understand God's got a master plan. So let's zoom back in. We've got destruction at the Red X. We've got the Cyrus decree, the proclamation of the good news that God is with us at the exclamation, and then we've got the red, the green tick, which is, you'd assume, good news. Well, let's look at that. Ezra. Ezra writes, he's a scribe, and he's the one that said, uh, Cyrus said go, so he went. And in Ezra 6, verse 15, it says this, the temple was completed on March the 12th during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. And then if you just look over the, turn the page, Ezra 6, verse 21, the Passover meal, the celebration of God's deliverance was celebrated by the people of Israel who returned from exile and by others in the land who turned from their immoral customs to worship God, the Lord of Israel. Then they celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. It was great joy throughout the land because the Lord had caused the king of Assyria, that Cyrus, and then Darius, to be favorable to them. So he helped them rebuild the temple, the God of Israel. That's good news. We've got like a not-so-good start to the story. We've got some weird stuff in the middle where Cyrus says something that was prophesied 150 years earlier, and then the manifestation of God's promises, the temple being restored and people worshipping him and being filled with joy. So it is a happy story after all. I don't know where you're at at the moment. I know some of your circumstances, and I know some of you are at the Red Cross of Destruction. You're like, man, am I going to get through this? Some of you are at that place where you're searching for the promise. You're searching for 
what is it that God said? And sometimes when I sit with people and they're in the midst of a challenge, I say, what's the last thing you know God said to you? Let's go back to that. Let's anchor ourselves on that. And then from that, we can make some decisions. We can make some, some shifts. But the place we all want to live is the green tick. The manifestation of the promise. Where everything is good and everything is happy and we're filled with the joy of the Lord and we're dancing in the streets. But in his sovereign wisdom, God decides that we're going to go through challenges, we're going to go through times of, 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 of silence, and we're going to go through times where we see his promise. Like, he's God. He gets to choose that. We've got to see that God has a master plan and that we're part of his master plan. So wherever you are, take hope. As I introduce my message, God is up to something. If you read the book of Ezra, what you're going to notice is a good work got started by people and a good work got finished by people, and the references are there for you to look at. But I want to zoom in again because I want to nail this where you're at and where we're at as a church. So let's look. Let's zoom in right here. Good work has begun, and a good work has, has, uh, has been finished, but somewhere in the middle is the question mark. And I'm going to zero in today on what happens at that question mark. And I'm proposing that as a church, we're at the question mark. So what's going on here? This is, this is my title of my message, so there ends my introduction. I hope it was good for you. I hope it encouraged you. What I love to do at the end of each calendar year is speak about vision for 2019 and 2020, the year ahead of us. The reason I'm doing that is because I'm... I'm kind of looking ahead and I'm saying, hey guys, that's where we're going. That's what next year's going to look like. And I want you to get excited about that and be part of the journey. And today, my point in sharing some things with you is that you would come on the journey with excitement. That at the question mark, at the moment in time we're at right now, you'd go, well, okay, we're going that way. And you just got to, you, you, and you're going to have to trust me. And, well, you get to make your own mind up. You can follow or you can not, but the choice is yours. So the next couple of weeks and then the week, a few weeks after that, I'm going to just be sharing snippets of the vision, but I'm going to be drawing us forward to move in, in a direction. Today, the title of my message is Vision, Our Part in God's Story. What's, what's our part? What's your part? What's my part? What are we going to do in this moment of the story? And I really do invite you to seriously incline your heart and your spirit towards God that you'd hear His instruction. Because don't say you're following Phil. Say you're following God as part of this church. So here we are, back in the story, back in God's master plan. Whereas a church, we can say, North End Church is part of God's master plan. The elders take special care to make sure that we're in agreement with what we believe God is leading us into. It's not some whim that happens on a Friday night after too much pizza and you get to hear about it on Sunday. This is something that we take time to pray about. We take time to search God's heart about. We test, we measure, we weigh carefully, and we establish the next few steps for the church. The elders are the spiritual leaders of the church, and they take that role very, very seriously. This week when we met, we wrestled, we prayed, we deliberated, we argued a bit, and we resolved what God was saying so that we could move forward together. That's what we do. So North End Church is part of God's master plan. If you're part of North End Church, then you're also part of God's master plan. This is not just about me. 
not just about my staff team that get together and say, okay, what's next? What are we going to do? How do we do this together? It's all of us. It's all of us on a journey. It's all of us doing this. It's all of us moving forward. And um, that's really why I like to share things like this, because they draw us in. And as we're drawn in, we go together. All right? So, in reference to that, uh, last Sunday at lunch, we had what we call DNA Sunday, which is where we gather those that are new to the church. We have lunch. We just talk about the church. One of the things I said to that group, we had... um, um, four or five different families there. And I said, look, make a point of catching some of the vision messages that are already archived in the app. This is the most recent one. It's called Who, What, Why. Um, this, earlier this year, I shared a message that explains who we are, what we believe, and why we're going in this direction. And you can access I just I jumped on the website yesterday. I went to podcasts. I hit the search bar and, and typed who. And the first message that came up was this message. So I'd encourage you, go and listen to it. It'll recap those things that describe what we believe and where we're going and what the vision and the strategy is for this church. Because if you're on board, you want to know what you're on board with. If you were here and you did listen to it and you can't remember, go and grab it again. All the slides are there. You can read through and follow what I said. But get yourself aligned. So we, 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 know, we know who we are, but here's what we say. North End Church is a vision-led church. We are compelled by what God has shown us and that we are called to walk in that direction. Ezra was no different. Ezra heard what was said, got a mandate to go and be the guy, and he went back to Jerusalem to help them rebuild the temple. Nehemiah, many years later, also had that. That, um, that awkward time in prayer where he heard some bad news and he grieved and he fasted and he wept for Jerusalem. And the king says, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah goes, well, my people and my place and I can't, my Jerusalem. And he says, go. And he had this vision and it led him to rally the people and what hadn't been done for so many years was established in 52 days. The book of Nehemiah is the story of that. So people in the, church, in the, in the Bible are, are led by vision that comes from God. We're no different. We're a church that's inspired by what God is saying to us in the moment, and we move in that direction. One of the examples of the mandate of this church is um, that we are around developing people. Many years ago, uh, it was spoken to this church before my time that you will be, North End Church, you will be an apostolic training center. You will raise people up in the things of God and send them out to build and establish the church. So that's what we're doing. We're discipleship. We're all about discipleship. We're about training people up. We're about preparing that. I shared a couple of weeks ago in, in my return from Indonesia with regards to mission, that we also have a... We have a um, a strong desire that is moving to action, that we would be doing that on the mission field. And I shared with you that one of the objectives of our global mission strategy is that we will make the local church stronger by equipping pastors and resourcing churches. That we will raise up the next generation of church leaders in those areas that we're called to partner with. That's who we are. I scoured the um, archives and I found this photo. I'm sorry it's a bit blurry. But this is uh, me with a bunch of young people in Indonesia at the church in northern Sumatra. This is actually March 2017, where I've been there for um, several days teaching and training the young leaders 
who are the future of their church network. They're good at taking photos. They're also good at taking blurry photos. But this is us, our church, training and raising up future leaders. Because when I go, we all go. Training them up. We support a Bible school there. And this is this year's graduation at the Bible school. These young people on their knees being commissioned as part of their graduation to, well done, you've done three and a half years study. You've done three and a half years serving. You're now graduating Bible school and we'll send you off into your calling in Indonesia. And we're part of that. Each month we send them money to help them in the Bible school. We're part of what is happening there. This is young, uh, one of those graduates, this is a young girl called Desta. Just two weeks ago, they prayed for her, they blessed her, and they have sent her off to support a church plant in the middle of Sumatra with a, another pastor, a woman, she's a widow, I forget her name. Jamie, you know, shake your head, yeah, can't remember her name. But, but we're, we're sending Desta to go and partner with her to, to equip. And just even yesterday on Facebook, I saw a photo of Desta with all these young kids around her as she's straight away getting into sharing the good news of Jesus Christ where she's been called to go. Why am I showing you that? So this is who we are. This is what we do. God says, make the local church stronger, so we need to do that however we can. It's what we're doing. So let's go back and look at God's master plan because I want to hone in on what the Scriptures are saying to us this morning. Are you guys okay? Still following? Okay. So we've got 538 BC, a good work has begun. Ezra leads the people and rallies the troops and say, come on, let's put down the foundation for the temple of the Lord. Read the story. It's a great story, the story of Ezra. And then sometime later, a good work is finished and they all celebrate and they have a party and they celebrate the festivals that God established for worship. But something happened in the middle. And that's what I want to point to today. So what happened in the middle? What is the question mark all about? Let's have a look. Ezra chapter 5, the first two verses. At that time, at that moment, in Ezra 5, verse 1, at that time, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They prophesied in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, and Jeshua, Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, so that's the governor and the priest, they responded by starting to build the temple again, and the prophets were with them and helped them. So something happens here. The prophets speak out the message of the Lord, and the people respond. I'm like, what did the prophets say? So to find that out, this is, we're now really drilling down. We have to go to... Haggai, and then read what he says. So everyone turn to Haggai. What you are now realizing is the Bible is not in chronological order. Haggai, the prophet, gets a word of the Lord and he, he stands up and he's like, guys, guys, the Lord says, people are saying it is not the time to rebuild the temple of the Lord. But the Lord says, look at you guys living in your flash houses with your paneled walls and your special equipment. 
It's not going well for you, is it? Says God. Woe to you because you're not listening to the Lord. This is what Haggai says in Haggai chapter 1. Go up into the hills. Bring down the timber for the temple. I will take pleasure when you rebuild my house. You hoped for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, he says in verse 9, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins while you're busy building your own house. Like, yeah, ouch. Imagine having to bring that word to the church. You'd all give me dagger eyes, like worse than normal. I'd be like, oh. Haggai the prophet brings the word of the Lord and says to the people, guys, you got it wrong. And what happens is he says this in, in verse um, 6. There's five consequences. And Haggai says, the Lord says this, you planted much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, and you're still thirsty. God says, when you put on clothes, you don't get to stay warm. And finally, your wages disappear like you've got holes in your pockets. That's a pretty harsh word from God. What is God doing here? He's chastising people for a reason. And the reason is this. The reason is they got their priorities wrong. They thought they were doing what was important, and God says, you're not doing the right thing. You're not doing the right thing. Sometimes we get our priorities wrong. Sometimes we just get the message wrong and we're like, oh, whoops, made a mistake. But sometimes we take our focus off the most important thing. Sometimes we make assessments about situations and make decisions on false information. Sometimes we make judgments and then our heart gets shifted and then we're really in, the wrong, in trouble. I was reading this book this week. Um, someone... One of my team recommended a book. It's on missions. It's written by a guy who came out of India and started this movement. And it was really, really challenging book on many levels, personally and corporately for us as a church. And there's one little bit in there where he's having this uh, a conversation with a missions board of a large church. And he's like, so where are you guys at with what we're doing? And they say, well, we can't really be sure that we can trust those people in India with the money that we're sending them so we're not sending them money. And this guy says, you get it wrong. Who are you to judge people? God doesn't ask you to be the judge of other people. He asks you to be obedient to what he asks you to do. And as far as I read the Scriptures, this man writes, God says you should send your money. And there your obligation stops. You are not the judge. But, but we, we want to be sure that they're not wasting the money we give them. And the man says, that's not your job. It's an example. Sometimes we judge the situation and cut our nose off to spite our face. Well, I'm not going to give that money because I don't know what the pastor's going to do with it. Are you the judge? Wrong priorities, wrong thinking lead to our circumstances getting messed up. The people thought they were doing the right thing. They're not trying to be disobedient. But God says, look, my house lies in ruins while well, you live in a fancy house. But if you bring down the timber from the hills and you rebuild my temple, I will be pleased. God sometimes has to tell us we got our priorities wrong. 
The thing is, we can look at our lives and go, why are things going wrong for me? God says this, you plant much, harvest little. Wrong priorities lead to activity that's not fruitful. I know lots of people are busy, but not fruitful. Wrong priorities lead us to focus on ourselves and highlight our agenda as the most important thing. Many of you who know me well know that I spent 20 years doing financial seminars around New Zealand and overseas, and I can tell you the most common problem in people's finances is they become the god of their money. Small g. Focus on self, our priorities messed up. Or, or we take the demand of the needs. Man, I need this, I need that, I need this, I've got to sort this out. This needs to happen before that happens. When we make our agenda and our priority different to God's, we're in, the, we're in the wrong, not Him. We get caught up in protecting ourselves, making sure we're doing the right thing for our family. We get caught up in defending the decisions we've made or defending the mistakes that we've made. We get caught up in maintaining the expectation that we've created for ourselves. These are all the fruit of wrong priorities. And finally, money down the drain. I used to work with this guy. He had this saying. It used to drive me nuts. He'd say, oh, you know what? We're just, we're just always like 10 grand short. And under my breath, I'm like, and you always will be. Because his priorities were wrong, and he was searching for the wrong thing, and he was always just clutching, and oh, I finally had another 10 grand. Money down the drain just disappears as though your, whole, your pockets got holes in them. God really is, in this passage, he's chastising his people. So here's this. Wrong priorities bring rebuke from God and they require restitutive responses. What does that mean? Repenting and fixing. Repenting and fixing. That is what the people had to do. They had to repent. They had to acknowledge that God was right and they were wrong. And they had to fix what they'd done that was wrong. That's called restitution. That's called restoration of the mistakes and fixing what we did. So when God brings his rebuke to us, we've got to make restitution. And this is where I was praying this morning, and this is where I got a little messed up before you all got here. Because I'm like, maybe we should ask that question before we move on. Maybe we should say, God, is there an area where I've got my priorities wrong? It doesn't matter whether you're at the red cross of life, the exclamation mark, or the green tick. You always want to check your heart in every situation. God, I've got this crisis in front of me, and I'm scared. But have I got my priorities right? Are my priorities in line with yours? Don't ask the question if you don't want to hear the answer, by the way. That's why when I'm counseling people in a crisis, I always say, okay, let's go back. What's the last thing God said? Because we anchor ourselves there. And when we do, we align ourselves with his priorities. It's easy to do. The worst thing you can do in a red tick moment where you're seeing the manifestation of the promises of God is forget that God's the author of that. And go, wow, look how awesome I am. This is amazing. And not give him the glory for the good things that he has done. So, before I move on, 
Let me just ask this question. Let me suggest you ask it. God, is there an area in my life where I've got my priorities wrong? Be sure to hear what he says. Be sure to do something about it. In the story in the book of Haggai, and I'm going to also speak from Haggai next week, totally different message, totally different chapter. Uh, But in the story of Haggai, I just want you to hear how it finishes before we point the finger at us. Because the people said, God, are our priorities you know, God said your priorities are wrong, and they were like, oh, wow. You know, when we read in Ezra chapter 5 that the governor and the high priest responded positively, and the people came together and they established the temple. So in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12, we read, you can see it on the screen. Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, and Yeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the whole remnant of people began to obey the message from the Lord. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God sent, the people feared the Lord. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. I love this. God says, I'm with you. Man, that's awesome. Whenever you come to a place of repentance, God will say to you, I am with you. I love that. It's a bit of a theme for this morning in our pre-service prayer. It was something that really felt to, to proclaim and declare our agreement with God saying, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you. You may have to bear that and carry the consequences for your decisions in that, but I'm always with you. And I love that. I love that. The people in the story responded and aligned their priorities with God, and God says, I'm with them. May the greatest desire of our heart be to hear those words. The Lord said, I am with you. So as I come to bring this to a close, I, wanna, I want us to consider where we're at. And what I'm, what I'm leading towards and will continue to do for the next four or five or six weeks is to invite you to be part of the story. Um, normally in, in this time of year, what we're doing is we're talking about our missions program and we're setting our budgets for next year and we're going, come on, let's be part of that. And, and I've decided not to do that at the end of this year. We're going to push it into the middle of next year. But that's not to say there's not something for us to be part of. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how we can participate as individuals, as part of a collective. And what we're going to do, I'm going to get my team to uh, pass out those cards. And um, these are what we call vision cards. And we, we do this as, as a church because we're part of a body of churches across New Zealand. And Pastor Sam Monk, I really encourage you to come and join us on Tuesday the 27th. Pastor Sam is a very strong, articulate communicator. He's a passionate leader. About, he's passionate about Jesus Christ in New Zealand, and you're going to be inspired to hear him. But I watched him this year lead us as pastors into a place where we chose to participate in what he called a vision offering. And he built... Not so much a picture of what the vision was, but a built, he, built the, 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 uh, he built the expectation that everyone 
wanted to be part of it, regardless of what it looked like. Regardless of, no judgment, no wrong priorities, whatever it is, I'm in. And he always, he said this, there's always a, a response from God when we submit ourselves in a, what he called a power offering. And, and I caught that and I'm like, because there's offerings that we bring that are, they, you know, they're easy to do. But then there's the offerings that we bring where we go, oh man, this is going to hurt. This is going to require sacrifice. And it's, it's King David. Well, he was anointed king, but he wasn't yet king. He brought something before the Lord and he said this. He says, I will not bring an offering to the Lord of something that has cost me nothing. And what he meant by that was, if there's a sacrifice attached to the offering, the Lord is pleased. And I've been praying about this. And I've been searching God's heart for the right way for me to do this. And I've been searching and I've been seeking counsel and I've been asking, how do we do this together? And I really um, felt the Lord say, set the expectations that this is going to be significant. So I wrote in my report to the elders a couple of months ago as we prepared for praying into this. I said, I really believe that we're going to raise $40,000 from this vision offering. But since then, the Lord's told me I've been thinking small. And I don't want to think small. And then the Lord said, are you ready to pray big prayers? Because when you pray big prayers, you need a big God to answer. So God willing, I believe we're going to smash that initial number that I just quoted. I believe that there's some families in our church, and I am going to speak numbers because I need to set expectation. I believe there's families in this church, I think there's four or five families that are going to commit to give more than $10,000. And that's a number that's going to scare some of you. And it should, because you might be one of those families. And it always hurts to give $10,000, trust me. Some of you are going to make a pledge at a level that's beyond your capacity. And for some of you, that's like $5,000. And you're like, man, we don't even have enough to sort out our Christmas holiday. And God says, have faith in me. Partner with him. $400 a month, $100 a week, that's an immense amount of money for any family. But are we going to judge what God says by reality or by his promise? Some of you are going to bring a one-time gift of $250, and it's going, to be, it's going to be like the widow's might. God is going to look, he's going to smile, and he's going to be well pleased. It's not about the number. It's about the obedience and the willingness to surrender before God and say, not my will, God, but yours be done. Some of you are looking at your budget in your head going, oh my goodness. And you should. I'm not asking you to be um, errant. I'm not asking you to be irresponsible. I'm not asking you to put your family on the street. I'm asking you to listen to God. And I thought I'd point our attention at one thing today. Because I've got, I got lots I could talk about, but we haven't got time. One thing. The other day, we were working in the office here, and it was a typical Waikato spring day, which meant it was raining, raining really, really hard. And um, Kaylee 
was um, out here. We were all working out in the family room, and, and all of a sudden she gets up, and she's running around the church putting out buckets. Because when it rains on the outside, it rains on the inside in about six different locations in this building. And she knows where they are, so she dutifully gets the buckets, and off she goes. And you can see the evidence of that if you look closely. And, uh, you know, what it would cost us about 100 grand to fix our roof. Last time they fixed it, they didn't do it right. Uh, Lloyd and I have talked about it. He know, he's the expert, not me. But apparently just the way it was done meant that the water can get in. And Jeff and I have talked about the drainage, you know, on the side, because he knows about that. And it's like, well, it just wasn't built to cater for Waikato rain. And Andrea Price, the scaffolding alone is 10 grand before we start working on the roof. So, so we could easily put 100 grand into this building just to fix the roof. But I don't think God wants us to. Because that would be focusing on our needs. And I don't think we should focus on our needs. I think we should focus on the needs of others. And when we focus on the needs of others, we're saying, God, we trust you with our circumstances. We trust you with our reality. We trust you with our problem, our insufficiency. We trust you with the leaks we've got, but we choose to put our attention on the other people. And if we do what we can to help others, I'm sure we invite the strength of God into our needs. Make sense? Do you get what I'm saying? I'm believing for a power offering over the next six weeks, and I'm believing for faith. I'm not praying for numbers. I'm praying for faith. And I'm, I'm saying to you that this is not about building our house stronger here, like the people in the book of Haggai. We're not paneling the walls with cedar and making it all cozy, focusing on the needs of others of what God said. And we've got an opportunity one of those opportunities looks like this. I'm going to build a Bible school building in Indonesia so we can train more pastors. We've got an opportunity to buy a piece of land right next to the church for $15,000. For them, it may as well be a gazillion. And for us, I'm going like, is that it? It's right next to the church and we can put together something. This is just a concept. This is not the actual plan. Don't worry, we have not made plans. But we're like, what would we do if we could? To register our school with the government, we must have three classrooms. So we've got the Bible school. It's just not, a, it's not it's complicated. But let me just say this. The, the building needs three classrooms. If we're going to have three classrooms, it means we've got three years we're training at the same time. We want to have dormitories so we can have up to 30 or 40 students living on site while they do their Bible training. That means we need a kitchen facility downstairs. It means we need toilets, uh, bathrooms. You won't call them bathrooms, but they're, they're wet rooms where they wash and they, and, they, and, they, and they live. And a couple of apartments for tutors that come to visit to do the teaching. Man, we could do that. We really could. We'd have a place for us to take people where they could do their missions outworking and be transformed as they surrender to God's will and go into a third world nation and learn what it's like. Because I can tell you, the people that I've taken the last couple of years to Indonesia or to India, not the same people anymore. 
God's worked on their hearts while they're there. And I'd love to have greater opportunity to do that. So here's what I'm suggesting. Ask God, how can I be part of your story? What does it mean to make a power offering for vision as part of this family? And commit to it. But I'm promising you, we're not putting the attention on ourselves. We're putting the attention on others. Here's what I reckon we should do. Can I get the band to come back? We didn't plan this, but Haley, can you lead us in song four? Start the guitar a bit again. That'll be fantastic. You come, band, come and play. Let's let's just sing that chorus. You can have it all, Lord. Be careful if you sing that though, because you might hear it as a prayer. You might get what you asked for. But imagine imagine that. Living in a place where you actually say you can have it all, Lord, and you mean it. Please stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing this together. I would invite you to, to take time. Don't rush. You can fill in the card this week or next week. I went to a conference once where we did this every session. They gave out the card to every person, and the pastor said, hey, look, maybe you got a bigger number than yesterday, so fill the card in again. So next week, guess what I'm doing? I'm giving you another card. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you, and we thank you that you are building your church across the nations to see the message of Jesus Christ bring transformation to the darkness that needs your love. We want to be part of that, Lord. As a church, you've given us a mandate to raise up, to strengthen, to release church planters, pastors, ministers of the gospel. We want to be part of that. We want to do our part. Lord, we ask that you shape our hearts, that you lead our minds, and you give us the strength to surrender. Because only in surrender are you lifted up in our lives. Lord, I bless this church. I thank you for their generosity. I thank you that we've got a great legacy for things that have been done. But let us not rest on history. Let us move forward together in your strength. Amen.